Well, brothers and sisters, if you would remain standing and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. We will continue looking at Jesus' description of final judgment. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us, and then I'll begin reading at verse 31 of that chapter. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you in the name of Christ our Lord. Lord, we have gathered to not only sing your praises, to be reminded of your greatness and your glory, but also, Lord, to listen and to learn, to hear your voice, to have your truth impressed upon us, to have our hearts shaped and conformed to your mighty will, your glorious will. And Father, as we look at this text of Scripture, this description of that final day of judgment, a day of, of, a, of the revelation of, of your amazing grace and of justice, Lord, we pray that as we come to this by faith, that it would have its effects upon us, whatever they are. However, Lord, we need you to come and minister to us. We pray and ask, O oh Lord, you to come, descend upon us, walk in our midst, Lord, give to each one according to your will and according to your most holy purposes. Excite the fear of God in us. Excite obedience and, Lord, works of mercy in us. Give us, O oh Lord, a great desire to be among those on your right hand, among those called your sheep. I pray, O oh Lord, that there would not be any here this morning. And the sound of my voice that would be found upon your left among the goats. Oh, Father, come. Come and save those who need saving. Come and continue to save us who are saved. Demonstrate, oh Lord, this morning your powerful, powerful mercies in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And beloved, beginning... At verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, and then he will sit on his glorious throne, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, 
Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it unto me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or, or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, beloved, this is the third message upon this text of Scripture, and it's not because I have or we have some morbid interest in the judgment of God. Not at all but that this text and text like it serve as great reminders of the predicament that all men find themselves in apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the acceptance of the gospel, apart from resting and trusting in him alone for one's salvation. As mentioned last week, there are many on the broad way. There are many who are going down to hell and they are on the broad way. And messages like this serve to awaken God's elect that remain on the broad way when they hear the gospel maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. It matters not. It matters, though, that the gospel is continually preached and men called to Christ to believe and to trust and to put their faith in him and to confess their sins and to be incorporated into the body of Christ, the visible church, and to exercise those gracious talent, gifts. This text is the punctuation mark of the parables of Jesus referring to the absentee landowner 
the one who has entrusted unto his servants his estate until he comes again are those ten virgins waiting upon the bridegroom to make his presence known and they would go out to meet him and usher him into the presence of the bride. In each of those, there are those who were faithful and those who were not. Each receiving their just and due reward when he returns. Just and due reward when he returns. I hope I have demonstrated the reality of judgment from those basic Christian creeds and confessions that all speak to it. This is not a fringe doctrine whatsoever. Throughout the church from the beginning, there has been an understanding that there is a appointed day of judgment. It's an essential established dogma of the Christian church. And Christians should embrace it and believe it. Demonstrated it from the light of nature, the consciences of men, living, if you will, according to even their own broken moral code without the rewriting of the law by the spirit upon their hearts that men in all nations, all societies, born everywhere, seek to do what's pleasing morally. Why is that? You have to go back and listen to that sermon. And then, of course, biblically. The more sure foundation is the Word of God, is it not? The more sure foundation is the Word of God. And the Word of God, like in this text, teaches us quite clearly that there is going to be a day. And Jesus is describing it for us. He's opening up, if you will. He's giving all of us, as he was his listeners then, a glimpse of that day. He's pulling back the curtain and he's telling them, this is how it will be. And like his disciples and those around him at that point in time, they should have listened. They needed to listen like us today and every other generation that sits at the feet of this text to listen to it, to still hear the words of our Lord ringing in our heads, in our hearts, molding our decision-making, molding our lives, molding our desires, molding molding our motivations from here on out. All in light of this truth coupled with many others, but not in isolation of this one. 
not in neglect of this one. And I know where the broad Christian church is on this topic. They don't want to talk about judgment. They don't want to talk about wrath and judgment and responsibility and accountability. But nevertheless, it's the reality. It is a fact. The appointed day has already been set and we are all going to be there. We're going to be ushered there. We're going to be chauffeured there by glorious angels and we will all be assembled before the Lord who will act as a shepherd. This glorious king of kings will act like a shepherd acts in the separating of the sheep and the goats. This very definitive act is not like he's determining at that time, you're a goat, you're a sheep. No, we enter into that eternity already a sheep or a goat. When you take your last breath, whatever estate you are in spiritually at that point will be what you will be before the Lord when you're ushered before him. Our confession is quite clear. We are to make use of these texts of Scripture for our Christian motivation. Turn in your hymnals. I, I wanna, I'm going to show you several places in the confession of faith. Go all the way to the back of the hymnal. It's going to be... I'll give you the page number 689, 689. I'm going to read to you from this, the, the confession, because I want you to understand, beloved. Number one, I want you to be using your confession. I want you to use it. That's why it's, we have it. It's a treasure that's been handed down, and we are to use it in tandem with our scriptures to help us understand it. But you'll see there chapter 33. The very last chapter is called The Last Judgment. I'm just going to read the very first few words of paragraph one. God hath appointed a day. We've talked about that. Look at paragraph two. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy, which we're talking about this morning, in the eternal salvation of the elect, end of his justice, in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into eternal life and receive the fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. I'm just going to stop there, but it's the third paragraph that I want us to really take note of because this is the motivation. In a very pastoral way, what are the, these Westminster divines doing? These were pastors. They understood that this doctrine should not just be some static truth that we accept, but that it should have, like all other truths, have an impact upon our lives. That it shouldn't just be something like a sticky note on our computer screen or on our bathroom mirror, but that it should have a, a, a moving effect upon our mind and our emotions. Notice paragraph three. 
as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment both to detour all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. Now, notice in that paragraph the counsel, the counsel that this offers us. That is, is certainly to detour us and all men from sin, something we lack today in church and outside of church, right? It's the effects of atheism. It's the, the ongoing residual effects of this push that there is no God, that somehow this whole universe spontaneously out of nothing happened, which is absurd and so unscientific. That's why evolution is not a science, it's a philosophy. Evolution is a philosophy of life. It's, the, it's an attempt for a wicked man to come up with some answer about how we all got here and where it all came from. I've said it a thousand times. You've heard me say it. I'm going to say it a thousand more, if not more. The abandonment of the doctrine of creation has been a serious, serious detriment to the people of God and to this world that we live in. We have failed to witness to the world around us that God of Scripture is the creator of this universe. We failed. We have failed. We're to tell the truth with a holy boldness. Let me tell you something. I just wish we were as zealous for God being creator as God is for him calling himself creator because he calls himself creator throughout all of the scriptures. And there's not, it's not accidental that John 1.1 is a parallel to the creation story with Jesus Christ coming into the world. There's a parallel there. If you can't believe that God created the world out of nothing, how can you believe God would send his son into the world in the womb of a virgin? It's impossible. So this great, now notice we got this detouring of sin and this great consolation of the godly. What? In their adversity. It's not always going to be this way. I know some of you are hurting. Having it difficult. You're having a difficult time. Some of it is age. Some of it is circumstance. Some of it is 
just the things that you find uh, people around you. I, there's all kinds of ways that our lives can be hampered and hindered, hindered and, and, and move us to what? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Right? That's not fatalism. Fatalism is just throwing your hands up in the air and saying, I'm done, it's over, I can't, oh, it's just so, woe is me. That's fatalistic and we don't want to do that and that's sinful. The Christian responds in the midst of that adversity, this is what my Lord has given to me and I can't do it in my own strength. But I can do all the things that he's called me to do in Christ Jesus by his power and by his strength. I can do all things in his name. I can bear up under this trial. I can bear up under this adversity. I can see daylight at the end, not because I see the ray of light, but because I look into the God's holy word and I see the light. I see it. I see it. How, pastor? With the eyes of faith, brothers and sisters. It's not always going to be this way. And you're not always going to be in this estate of suffering, I promise you. Beloved, as we look at this text of scripture in chapter 25, I, I want to bring to our attention this commendation and reward of the righteous, verses 34 through 40. That's our focus this morning. And, and there are really three things that the confession at least highlights in the chapter on saving faith as it as it relates to saving the, the principal acts of saving faith. Now, they are these. There are three. Let me give them to you. The first saving or the principal act of saving faith is accepting. Accepting. Accepting what? Well, accepting the truth about your condition. You are a sinner held bound apart from the grace of Almighty God. This is, the, this is the picture, isn't it, of this judgment. There are only sheep and goats. There are only righteous and wicked. There's only the family of God and the family of Satan. Notice how Jesus, our Lord, even said in verse 41, and he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones. Not the blessed ones. Not the called ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Why highlight that? Because the devil is the original sinner. He's the original murderer. He's the original rascal. He's the original deceiver. He's the original liar. And God, before the foundation of the world, has prepared a place for that devil and his devils. And those who are like him, contra 
to those who are like God and in the family of God, called of God, the elect ones, the disciples, the followers, the submission one, the submissive ones. Unlike them, they too will be cast into this eternal fiery abyss. The devil and his family. All these pictures and movies and fantastical, depraved ideas about somehow the devil dancing in hell, ruling over this hellish kingdom is all fake. It's all lies and it's not how it's going to be. The devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and he will be tormented day and night for his rebellion. As those who followed in his lies, selfishness and deception. The truth about your condition, the truth about the world, the truth, the truth about God. Accepting that. Second principle act is receiving. It's not enough to just accept it. You have to receive. Receive what? The gospel, the the son of God, Christ as he is offered in Holy Scripture. Not some philosophy of some stalwart university filled with a bunch of, quote, intellectuals. Are the media able to fabricate and and put together expensive experiences on film and talk about the life of Christ on earth as if he was just some human guru like Gandhi. I love what one old theologian said that we are commanded, we are presented with and commanded to receive the Christ of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That Christ and no other and none other and no one else with him. We are to receive Christ the Christ of, and this is so important. This is, I, we, could, we could end th- this morning right here on this point. We could spend a lot of time talking about this point because you have, you, we, have a, we have a man running for the Senate who, claim, who is a pastor that says, it's okay to kill your children at full birth. It's okay. God's okay with your abortion. Well, obviously he hasn't met the Christ of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't care what he thinks. He's not met this Jesus who condemns that horrific murder. And then there's the resting. So there's three, accepting, receiving, and resting. What do we mean by resting? We mean that we don't mean it in a passive way. But in one sense, there is a passivity to it in this, that I put off my work, striving 
to make myself good and presentable that somehow that I'm going to squeak out enough good things to overcome all the bad things and God doesn't have a choice but to say, oh, golly, geez, come on in. It's not going to happen. But to put that off and rest in Christ. I don't have anything to offer. I rest in what Christ has offered. I rest that when my heavenly father sees me, he sees the blood of Christ. He's washed me from my sins. And this is important, isn't it? This is, this is the, these principal acts of saving faith. Here's what the confession says. That, the, that these stand alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by the virtue of the covenant of grace. As we get into the text... Look at Matthew 12. At the very end of Matthew 12, just turn and open your Bibles there. And um, I want to make a point and then really move into the meat of the text itself. In Matthew chapter, Jesus has really stirred up the hornet's nest. and He's really got the Pharisees bearing down on him. And they are really, really seeking to entrap him. And, I mean, it's causing all kinds of social tension. I mean, listen, uh, social, uh, the, what, is, what do they call that? To counsel, what is it? To counsel somebody? That's nothing new. It's been happening for thousands of years. Jesus' family are coming to him to help him get his mind right because he has really upset the establishment. And so they have come to him and they want to hear from him. I mean, they, they're, if you look there at verse 47, it says, Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Speak to you about what? About your teaching. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, this is 48, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold your mother and your brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother, my sister and mother. Who's the family of Jesus? Those who obey the will of God. Those who are striving, right? Those who are, are, are resting in him as he has offered himself, as he has instructed us to do. Those who have accepted his teaching, his, they haven't accepted his teaching. They didn't like it. Oh, well, no, we're not that bad. I mean, there's brothers and sisters. Another doctrine that the modern church hates is that of depravity churches by uh, many churches and this is not a us and them sermon I don't like those sermons 
but this is, this, is, this is not like our church against that church, but this is the people of God that have incorporated in its membership philosophies, doctrines, and teachings that we must reject in this idea that self-help is the gospel of the day. Not a savior, a conquering, powerful savior that's going to come back and who is saving his people. Look, that's the gospel. The gospel is you can't do anything but go to hell and Jesus comes to save you from that hell. You don't meet him halfway. You don't just, you know, barter with God, 30, 40, 64, I mean, 30, 70, 64, whatever it takes, God, we'll work this out. No, there is no working out. You're dead and you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, comes to save. He's a saving God. And as we see here in the text, to the uttermost, there's two verbs this morning that we're going to that I'm highlighting, and those two verbs are going to be what I break the text down with, and what our application is going to be. I'm going to change the tenses. Here are the two verbs. The two verbs are rested and strived. Past tense. Why is it past tense? It's past tense because the text is at the well last day of the world. They stand before Jesus, and these are the ones who have rested. These are the ones that did rest in Christ. And I, I want to take the word rest and let it encapsulate the other two participles that we just looked at, accepting and receiving. Now, these are the ones that have rested. These are the ones that the text says the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed or favored of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That This resting has absolutely nothing to do with them, but it stands upon the solid foundation of God's sovereign grace. That's what verse 34 teaches us. Come, notice that imperative come is something that the elect and the sheep have done all of their human experience. When they heard Jesus say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What did they do? They came. Come and embrace Jesus Christ and confess your sins and put your faith in him. What did they do? They came. John tells us in John 10 that Jesus preached and he says, my sheep hear my voice. Hmm. What do the sheep do when they hear his voice? They come. This is not accidental. Come. Come. Come to me. Come. You've been wanting me. Now I am here and you are here. Come to me. Come closer. Come and receive your reward. These are not the ones that said, oh, but Jesus, I'm a, I got to go bury my daddy. 
I got a job to do. I, 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 can't, I, I can't do it. I, I got to work. Let the dead bury the dead. Well, I, I, I got to cut the grass. I mean, foxes have holes. Birds have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Not in this work. this foundation of sovereign grace beloved is seen in that imperative come you who are what blessed of my father favored yeah who are the favored who are the blessed the elect the elect they're called the elect turn in your bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 I'm just going to begin at verse 3. and Let me set the background. This, this is highlighting that glorious covenant of redemption. This covenant that is Jesus speaks of, he says, before the foundation of the world, before anything was ever made, your salvation was determined before you were even created, before your first parents were ever created. Jesus, Paul is highlighting this redemptive covenant between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, what we call this triune council, this eternal council, if you will. This is the surety of our salvation because Jesus, the Father elected and Jesus said, I will go, I will pay the price. And the Holy Spirit said, I will apply this Christ to the elect. Here's what Paul says. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There are no other blessings, beloved. All of these blessings, all of these spiritual blessings are only located where? Where's that word in? What is it? The location. Where are they found? In Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And he had made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his own will to the end that 
we who, are, who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. I just stop there. But verse 13 talks about the gospel. The believing and accepting of what? The gospel. When you talk about believing and receiving, uh, accepting the gospel, what are you talking about? Believing and accepting Christ, who is the subject of the gospel. Who is the gospel? Not some just bare message, but a person in the message. It's a message of a person, a savior, a king, a conquering king, a glorious king. These two verbs are, as we focus on these two verbs, brothers and sisters, as we go back to Matthew 25, as I demonstrate this, notice these are the ones who have been elected. These are the ones who were disciples of Christ on the earth. These are the ones that, that plucked out their eyes to deal with sin. These are the ones that cut their hand off to deal with sin. These are the ones who picked up their cross and were submissive to Christ. They rested. They're rested. They've done it. It's done. The transverse for us is what? That we still must want rest. We're still resting, aren't we? We're still carrying. We're still cutting. We're still plucking. We're still hearing. We're still accepting. We're still bearing the cross, aren't we? We're still doing these things that God's children are called to do. Because we want this picture to be of us. Of us. I need to move on. I want to finish this portion. I don't want to make it another sermon. Striving. Or those who have strived. The striving part comes in the works of mercy, these works of mercy. Uh, Jesus, you know, this text of scripture has been so manipulated and abused to, to speak of this sort of a socialized gospel that is, well, we don't have to, you know, we can believe in Jesus as a good man and just do good deeds and we'll be all okay. That's not what the text says. And that's not what it means. I've just, I'm laid, I'm opening up for you. I hope you can see that's not what it means. If I've done half a decent job, you know that. Nevertheless, what this text tells us is it, as we rest in Christ, that that resting in Christ is demonstrated primarily through the works of mercy. How so, pastor? Well, it's like this. Best I can tell. Reading Reading, reading, and rereading, and rereading, and rereading, and summarizing all kinds of scripture. We are never more like Christ 
when we are serving the needs of others. It's convicting, isn't it? What did Jesus come to earth to do? To save that which is lost, wandering, deceived, dead. What do we find Jesus doing as he sends out his preachers? Healing the sick. Relieving the psychosis of the possessed of the demons. Taking away their spiritual burdens, forgiving their sins, and washing them, making them clean, clothing them in his own righteousness. I think one of the most beautiful, uh, well, there's a couple, well, there's a bunch of them. Think about Mary and Martha. I think about the women of ill repute. I think about the woman washing Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. Saved, made clean, healed of her lusts. I think about the woman who with this ongoing hemorrhage who testified in the presence of the disciples, if I could just touch even the hem of his garment, I knew, I knew he would save me. I knew he would heal me. And he did. You can imagine the elation of that woman. Imagine the blind beggar. Oh, son of David, have mercy on me. And the disciples go, ah, be quiet. We ain't got time for this. We got to move Jesus along. We got appointments to make. We got ministries to do. And Jesus stops. The beggar saying, you can heal me if you want to. I do want to. I do. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. A stranger, you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick. And you visited me. I was in prison. You came to me. What's the point in these? The point that Jesus is making with these sheep, right? With his disciples, with his true followers, with those who submission, those those who submit to his will, those who desire... He says, says, you met the needs of my sheep and my brethren. That's what he says. Notice that he he does, he says, what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me, verse 40. And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine. Who's, 
Who have we already seen as the family? Who's the family of Jesus? Those who obey the will of the Father. What are we striving to do? We're not just striving to be busy. For our Lord knows we are busy. We're not just striving to be active. Because sometimes you don't need to be active. Sometimes you need to sit still and know that he's God. But when there is a need among the brethren, who's going to do it? And do you think and think not that when you do it, it goes unnoticed because our Lord teaches us as you've done to the least of these. I see see you. You did to me. You did it to me because you did it out of love for me. You did it out of service to me. You did it out of elation for me. You did it because you were so happy, happy and glad that I saved you. You did it on it, because of me. And now you are like me. You are serving the brethren. You're feeding. You're giving. Th- I mean, all of these. Think about it. There's a spiritual side to all of this. I, I'm not going to focus on it because I don't think that's the intention that Jesus is making here is obviously meeting physical needs. You remember what James counseled the church way back when? He said, listen, don't just, if somebody has a need, don't just say, oh, (laughs) bless you. Now be gone. If you could do something, why wouldn't you do it? Why wouldn't I do it? Because listen, listen, what's the contra side? What's the whole point that the goats, I was all of these things, and you didn't do any of it. You didn't do it in my name. You didn't do it for me. You didn't do it out of submission to me. You didn't do it out of love for me. You didn't do it. And nor do I know you. But you will inherit what I have prepared for the devil and his devils his fallen angels. That's your place because that's where the selfish, prideful liars go. Masquerading on earth as a disciple of Jesus Christ, never lifting a finger to do one good deed. It's false. It's false. We do have to be careful The church is more than just social activities. It's social help. But brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you, we may not be able to have a cloak, closet, whatever, but we can support some of these people that do. Hmm? Right? There's a lot of ways we can fulfill this commandment. Right? Right? So the, 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 the inverting of the, the verb tense is that they have rested, it's done. They, they have strived, it's over. But for us, what should we be doing? Resting in this 
amazing grace of God, that power of the gospel flowing in us and through us and maintaining, striving, striving to do what? To meet needs and to show mercy to those who need it. I'm going to close with this statement. And I could go on for another hour on this one statement. I promise you. The church is full of selfish and mean people. I pray that we would fight against that testimony. We'd fight it. We don't want that true here. Why? Because, Pastor, you scared me? No. God scared you. Fear of God. But because Jesus is telling us how to prepare for that day. He's telling us. He's showing us. He's gone away. He's not here physically. He's coming back again. What is he going to be looking for? Have you fed me? Have you given me water? Have you clothed me? Have you given me medicine? Have you visited me? Have you done those things? Because when you have, you did it to me. Let's pray. Blessed God, we are thankful for the time we've had in this text. We are thankful, Lord, for the reminder, the blessed reminder of that appointed day, Lord, that's been set apart for the foundation of the world, that you will gather all inhabitants that have ever lived before you, and you will give them their their due reward. Some will be resting upon grace, and some, Lord, upon their own works. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy. Lord, let not any of us here this morning stand before you in our own power, in our own works. Lord, we will fail. We will fail. But it's only by the grace, sovereign grace of our Father that we have been washed and cleansed and clothed in his righteousness, that even those works that we do are accepted for Christ's sake. Now, Father, we love you. And we pray now that you would prepare us to come to this most important special meal, this Lord's Supper. Lord, that we would feast upon your body and blood and be satisfied with, Lord, you as you come to us, as you meet with us, as you commune with us, as you, Lord, are present with us spiritually. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, on the, on the last day, the day of Jesus' betrayal, he had eaten the Passover with his disciples. And after that meal, he took the bread, he blessed it, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me until I come again. And he passed that bread to his disciples, and they did eat. After the bread, he took the wine. He blessed it, and he said, This is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission or the forgiveness of sin. 
And he passed this cup and he said, drink this in remembrance of me until I come again. Now, beloved, Christ has instituted this meal for the strengthening of God's people. All that we've heard this morning, we can't do it in our own strength. We get put out with one another. We get sideways. We, we, there are all kinds of impediments we have to doing good and merciful works. And the Lord comes by spirit. And what does he do? He works in us. He subdues us. But it's not a, it's not a, a, a fisted submission. It's a willful one where we lovingly submit and go, you know, I want to serve my brother and sister. I want to lay aside myself. I want to be like Christ. I want to come to my brother and sister, and I I want to be a a physical savior, if you will. I want to help. And God refreshes us with joy and happiness. I mean, what Jesus said, come, you who are blessed of the Father, favored. Amen. Amen. See, that, that, that tense is not just then, it's all along the way. You're blessed, you're favored. Now, now, we are. He's blessing us now, he's favoring us now to do what? Man, I wanna bless you. We are blessing each other. We feast upon this meal, beloved, because we need ongoing spiritual nourishment from our Lord. It's not just here and there. We want a consistent, continual feasting upon the body and the blood of Christ, if you will, spiritually by faith so that we can put our hands to this great gospel work and not look back. We want to keep moving forward to the kingdom of heaven. So brothers and sisters, what should you prepare for as you take this meal? First of all, examine yourselves. See whether or not you be in the faith. See whether or not that Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords in your heart and mind. I mean, examine yourself. Where do you stand with Jesus? Is submission a cuss word to you or is it a sweet word? Where do, you, where do you see yourself in that accepting, receiving, and resting in Christ? Where do you see all that? Well, examine yourself and then come and, well, feast upon Christ for your nourishment. Now, if you're not a Christian, you need to become one. Don't take the supper. Not out of, out of embarrassment, but no, become a Christian. Be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Join the church and then come and feast upon Christ. Come, he says. Did he not? What did you? Come. What's Jesus saying right now? Come. Come all. Come. Let's sup together. Examine yourselves, brothers and sisters. The invitation, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian and you know you're a Christian and, and yes, uh, you, you bear all of the, the fragility of what it is to be a Christian in the world. And yet, what's 
should you do? Come and feast upon Christ for more nourishment, for, for more strength so that you can what? Persevere in these works of mercy. Be greater fixated. You know what? When the opportunity rises, Lord, give me the means and the desire to seize the moment. Help me, Lord. Come and feast upon the Lord. Let's pray.